Does God act in history? If you look honestly at the world as it is, does the world as it is testify to the existence of a loving and powerful God who acts in the world to make sure that God's highest ideals are implemented? Now, of course, even asking that question in this hot mess of a summer of 2021 suggests the radical implausibility of the premise that God would ever act in history. After all, how can God act in history when just this summer alone, just this summer alone, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, massive unprecedented fires cause death and destruction to scores of innocents too numerous to count. How could God act in history when the Delta variant is raging? How could God act in history when two suicide bombers explode themselves at the airport in Kabul, killing 13 American service members and more than 100 Afghan civilians and wounding so many more very seriously. In short, if we're honest about it, if we look at the world as it is, the only honest answer to the question, does God act in history, has to be no. And that assessment is accurate. It's just that it leaves us with two problems. First, it's a problem for the world to be a hot mess and godless. If the world's a hot mess, we need something, some energy that's going to help us heal it. But it's also a problem for Jewish sources. Because the Bible's signature voice, the distinctive contribution of the Torah, this is core and foundational, is that God acts in history. We are supposed to believe in a God who acts in history. That's literally the first commandment. When God gives the Torah at Sinai, this is the first commandment. Anochi Adonai Elohecha, asher hotzeiticha me'eretz Mitzrayim, mi'bet avadim. I, the Lord, am your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Literally the first principle, literally the first commandment is not only to believe in God, but to believe in God who acts in history. And in Kitavo, which Naomi spoke so beautifully about, in the Declaration of the Farmer, the farmer's declaration deepens this. The farmer comes to Jerusalem, to the temple, with a basket of fruit, with a basket of pomegranates, 
figs, dates, grapes, wheat, and barley. And the farmer says basically two thank yous to God. God, thank you for being the God of nature. You made this fruit. You do fruit. Thank you for this fruit. And God, thank you for being the God of history. How is it that this basket of fruit belongs to me? Well, I'll tell you how. I'm part of a people, the Israelites. You promised this land to our ancestors. And then we went down to Egypt. And there we were oppressed and enslaved. We cried out to you. And you answered our prayer. You intervened. You freed us with signs and wonders. You brought us out of Egypt. You gave us this land. And I'm only a farmer with this produce now because you act in history. In short, we modern Jews, if we read the newspapers and if we read the Torah, we've got a problem because the newspapers make it pretty clear there's no God in charge of this hot mess of a world. But the Torah that we just read from this morning insists on the central premise of Judaism, that God acts in history. How are we supposed to navigate this tension? So this is an old problem, it's not a new problem, and there are three basic approaches. The first approach is in the Torah itself. And a couple of chapters later in Deuteronomy, God says, hey, bad things are going to happen to the Israelites, very bad. And when that happens, some of you may think there is no God. Some of you may think I'm asleep at the wheel. Some of you may think I don't act in history, wrong. Not so. I could act if I wanted to. I just don't want to because of hester panim, which means hiding my face. I'm going to hide my face. I'm going to be so appalled at your lapses, at how you act. I'm going to see you suffer, and I'm going to choose not to see. I could do something, but I'm going to choose not to because I'm hiding my face. The Torah actually says that. Hester him. Now, that's in the Torah, but I find it completely unsatisfying. If that's all religion has to explain the hot mess of this world, I'm just totally chucking religion. I'm out. It's just... If, if God sees human suffering, whether of the Israelites or of Jews in the Holocaust or of Afghan civilians and American service people today, and God sees this and God could do something and God chooses not to do something, that's just not a God I believe in. That's not a God I would ever want to believe in. So Hester Punim for me is out. Second explanation is a guy named Richard Rubenstein, who was a rabbi, and he wrote a book with his essential thesis. It's in the title. It's very simple. It's very punchy. It's very memorable. God is dead. That's the thesis. And his whole argument is just his thesis, that the God of the Bible, the God that the farmer gave the fruit to, the God who got the Israelites out of Egypt, that God is no more. Just look at the world, read the paper, see the Holocaust. Now, that argument is pretty compelling. Kind of explains the world. 
But I don't like this argument myself. To me, it's a humility violation. There's so much about the world I don't get. There's so much about the world that we don't get. Feels like a humility violation to just confidently proclaim a truth so large and so sad that there is no God. God is dead. I'm much more drawn to a humble approach. And as fate would have it, I heard this humble approach just this week. I was at Minion one morning this week. And the person leading services was a wonderful person in our community named Nami Nadich. Nami Nadich is the daughter of one of the truly great 20th century rabbis, Rabbi Judah Nadich. He was a rabbi at KI in Brookline, and then he was a rabbi for many years at Park Avenue in, in New York. A big, big rabbi. And it was his 15th Yortzite. And Nami is leading services in honor of this Yortzite. And when the service is over, I go up to Nami and I say, wow, 15 years. Could you share one teaching of your dad's that still really speaks to you, that especially speaks to you 15 years later, that especially speaks to you now? And she thought for a minute. And then she said, yes. Yes. My dad was a chaplain during World War II. And he joined the American army that liberated the concentration camps. And what he saw seared him. What he saw left him silent. And when he got back to America, after watching the camps liberated, he said, I cannot be a congregational rabbi anymore. And for a full year, he did not work as a congregational rabbi. And he said, I cannot talk about God. And I cannot talk to a congregation about God. And then after a year, he went back into the congregational work. And Nami said to him, Abba, what happened? What was it that happened at the end of the year that allowed you to be a congregational rabbi again? Abba, did you find answers to your questions? And he said, no, I never found any answers to my questions. But I realized that when I face questions that have no answers, I would rather face those questions that have no answers with God than without God. Humility, knowing that there's just so much we don't know, feels much better to me than a confident proclamation that God is dead. So in short, God is in hiding, doesn't work. God is dead, doesn't work. The last position is the one that I, anyway, find most helpful. And it's best expressed by the title of Abraham Joshua Heschel's most famous book, God in Search of Man. This book was published in 1955. No doubt today the title would be God in Search of Humanity. 
Now, Heschel had no illusions about the world. Heschel's mother perished in the Shoah. Heschel's three sisters perished in the Shoah. And here's the central argument in God in Search of Man. The statement that God acts in history is not a description of what is. It's an aspirational statement of what should be. But for this aspiration to be fulfilled, that takes us. That takes human beings who are inspired by God to make this a better world. In other words, God does not act in history unless human beings act in history because they're inspired by God. God does not act in history unless we act in history because we're inspired by God. We look at the world. We say, this is a hot mess. We say we're here for a nanosecond on planet Earth. We say we're here for a purpose. We're here to do our small part to make it a little better in the nanosecond that we have. And we have some guiding principles. God's highest ideals. Salam Elohim, that everybody is made in the image of God. Kvod Habriot, the infinite dignity of human beings. Tzedek Mishpat justice and righteousness, anivut, humility. And if we're inspired by those ideals to act, then God acts through us. So, last year on August 23rd, 2020, one of our members named Adam Sutton was biking with two friends of his in the Berkshires. So Adam was in his early 50s, in great shape, a serious cyclist, does PMC every year, Pan Mass Challenge. And he's biking with two friends, and he just has a heart attack on the bike. And he falls off the bike, collapsed. And he's far from anywhere. It's on a country road. And the Berkshires, by the way, if you know, has very patchy cell reception. Often very hard to get to make a call on your cell phone in the Berkshires. And the two friends that he's with are not doctors. They're not medical people. They see him fall, and they rush to him. And apparently, on a cell phone, even if there's no cell reception, you can still make a 911 call. And these two friends call 911, and the operator guides them to how to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to try to keep Adam Sutton alive until the ambulance comes. And somehow, they listen to her instructions, and they do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, and they keep Adam Sutton alive. And somehow, even though they're in the middle of nowhere on a country road, the ambulance comes. And four EMT people come out of the ambulance, and they use a defibrillator. And they stabilize Adam, and they 
whisk him to a hospital in the Berkshires. And from the Berkshires Hospital, he is helicoptered to MGH. And there, with the world's best doctors and with the world's best medical technology, Adam is treated for many weeks. And he comes to enjoy what was not at all a likely event the day that he collapsed. He comes to enjoy a complete and total refuah shalema, a full healing. He gets out of the hospital. He resumes his life with his beloved wife, Hope. He's back to being a loving dad to Ben and Rachel and Liana. He's back to doing his important work for his private equity firm. He's back to his leadership of CJP and of Arshul and of his other volunteer commitments. And just a few weeks ago, he bikes PMC again, just one year later after his heart attack. All of that is a miracle tale on its own. All of that is Dayenu. But there's a coda to the story. Approaching August 23rd, the day that he almost died. Approaching August 23rd, the day that he was given a second chance at life, Hope and Adam invite all the people who saved his life that day to their home so they could say thank you. So his two friends who were not doctors but who did mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, they came. And they found the 911 operator who talked them through it. She came. And the four EMT volunteers who came with the defibrillator and the ambulance, they came. And they all shared how they experienced that day. And Adam and Hope learned something that day. The four EMT personnel were volunteers. They're not professional EMT people. Monday through Friday, they have a day job. And it doesn't involve saving lives. But on weekends, Saturday and Sunday, Adam's heart attack happened on a Sunday. They volunteer doing EMT because they want to try to be helpful. These are all ordinary people doing the extraordinary feat of embodying God's most powerful teaching. If you save one life, you save the universe. Does God act in history? The answer depends on you. Shabbat Shalom.